passage we'll be looking at this morning in uh, the sermon is Psalm 126. So I'm going to have you turn there with me so we can read it. Uh, I'll also read some additional passages in the New Testament related to it. Uh, and then we'll pray and then we'll look at what Scripture says today. Psalm 126, follow along as I read. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So keep your mark there, and we're going to also read 1 Corinthians 15, 58. First, that some of you may know. Paul writes these words, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then last of all, um, the little letter of Jude, the last two verses. Again, you may be familiar with these. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, you have made yourself known to us and written that revelation in Scripture. And by Scripture, by your Spirit, this is for us, the living Word of God. And you speak today in very real ways to us, your people, through it. And we pray that that might be your work to us as you've gathered us. That when we leave here today, we'll walk away saying, what a great God and a great Savior we have. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm is for a particular group of people. If you today are in the midst of some form of suffering or loss, if that suffering seems to go on and on, and if your efforts to end it are futile, then this psalm is a psalm for you. Perhaps you're living in a prolonged season of lots of sighs and tears. Maybe you lost a spouse. Or your child has rejected the faith. Or you feel the effects of a lifetime physical weakness. Or you were betrayed, or you were abandoned, or you were abused, or your dreams have been crushed. And you wonder, what, what am I to do? How, how do I press on? And there seems to be a deep inner battle to trust God. Then this psalm is for you. It is God's word to help us 
when we are in a long season of loss or futility or weeping. I actually like to think of it as a weapon in our fight for faith in the midst of those circumstances. You see, the God of the Bible is not indifferent to us in our suffering, in seasons of prolonged loss. And the way he addresses us in those is not, first of all, to tell us what to do, but to speak of who we trust and give us reason for faith. He focuses on our hearts, not on our hands. And that's what this psalm does. This psalm enters into our hearts, and there are many voices in our hearts, voices of fear or anger or despair or regret. And God, by his word and spirit, enters our hearts, and he speaks to us in this psalm. And here's what this psalm will say. Weeping is not the last word about your life. Joy will be. Or put simply, this psalm gives us the promise of certain joy that gives us reason to sow while we are weeping. I want to walk you through that this morning. Here's where we're going. We're going to look at three things, and in the midst of it, we'll interject some application about how it speaks to us today. First thing we'll look at is restored fortunes and the joy of God. The second thing will be present sorrows and the joy of God. And the third will be living in light of the last word, which I'll explain. So first of all, restored fortunes and the joy of God. That's where this psalm begins, first three verses. It's a look back. It's a remembering of the past. The psalmist begins by remembering. And two things are clear in these verses. Number one, there was a very significant loss. And number two, God has brought an unimaginable deliverance. Verse one speaks of that significant loss. It's in the past, so it's just mentioned. God restored the fortunes of Zion. There was a need of restoration. There had been a significant loss. The word translated restored, speaks of captivity. God has restored our fortunes. God has brought us back from captivity. There's a little bit of debate among scholars about the meaning of the word, but this much is clear. This psalm is not talking about, well, I got a dent in my car. This psalm is talking about traumatic loss, a loss of fortune, which God has now restored. And it's a phrase that's used in other places in the New Testament. Uh, It's used about the restoration after serious loss. Something more than a dent in my SUV or pack rats in the air conditioning. It's a large loss. And there are two examples given in the Old Testament. One is Job, and the other is Israel. Job, we may know the story of Job. He was, Job never read the book of Job, so he didn't know what was going on. But we know what happened to Job. In the heavens, there was an unseen theater where God was displaying what it looks like for a man to trust him even when everything had been lost. And Job lost everything. All of his children, all of his wealth, all of his health for a very long time. A serious loss, chronic pain. An unexplained loss. He hadn't read the book. And at the end, we are told God restored the fortunes of Job. That's the same language as the psalm. 
incredible loss answered by God's restoration. The second one is Israel. Israel was taken into captivity. They lost everything. Two-thirds of the citizens died by sword or disease. So imagine Pima County, 670,000 dead. Large loss. And of the remaining third, most were taken into captivity, led hundreds of miles with hooks in their noses to humiliate them, leaving behind all possessions, most of their loved ones who had either died or been brutalized, loss of home, loss of homeland, loss of all that was familiar, moving to a new place where they were despised people, a forced emigration, a loss due to their sin and the aftermath of their sin. And in both cases, you have a great loss. That's what this psalm is referring to, that kind of a loss. Like my friend who fled from her homeland in Africa when her family was killed and she was threatened by the same people and she was able to escape. That's the kind of severe loss that is going on here. And the question is, in the face of that loss, can the true and the living God help people in such terrible loss? And the answer of this psalm in this opening section is they had a significant loss and God brought an unimaginable deliverance. Notice how he states it. When God restored us, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. This is, this is, this is deliverance beyond imagination. What do we, what do we say when something really good happens? We say, pinch me. Am I dreaming? This is joy spilling over in laughter. Not humor, but joy. I assume most of you watch The Lord of the Rings. Maybe not. Maybe some of you are purists and just read the book and say maybe some of you haven't read the book. But at the end of the Lord of the Rings movie, after Sauron is defeated because the Ring of Power has been destroyed and Sam and Frodo are rescued by Gwahir the Eagles, you can tell I'm a bit of a Lord of the Rings fan, uh, and they're brought to the Minas Tirith where he's restored to health, there's a scene where they awake from their coma of suffering and the various members of the Fellowship of the Ring begin to appear. And what do they do? They, they are filled with such joy, they burst into laughter. That's, that's the kind of deliverance these people are experiencing from God. Shouts of joy. One of the strongest phrases in this, in this psalm. Shouts of joy occurs three times. The nations who usually mock see that this is a work of God, an unexpected, beyond imagination, overflowing with laughter, shouts of joy, deliverance of God from unimaginable loss. Now, we had a little illustration of this last fall, didn't we? It's called the Chicago Cubs. After a century drought and the curse of whatever that goat was, we saw a whole team and a whole city experience this kind of joy. When the Cubs won the seventh game, coming from three games down, the men on the field looked like they were trying to fly. They couldn't, but they were ecstatic with joy. The people shown on camera 
in Chicago when that happened were in the same state. That's the kind of joy that's going on here. Unexpected, beyond imagination, so that it caused overflowing laughter and shouts of joy. It's what we feel when after great distress, a year of unemployment, marriage after years of waiting, cancer that brings on remission, we have great joy. And verse 3 is really the center of the psalm. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. God does great things for his people, even in their greatest losses. Friends, that's what our God is like. That is what our God is like, what we can expect of him. Psalm 50, God says to his people, Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's what's going on here. God brought them a day of trouble. They called out to him. He delivered them and now they are glorifying him with joy and laughter. See, God rules the circumstances of your life and my life so that when we experience trouble which he sends... We cry out to him and he delivers us. That's the pattern of the Bible. When Israel is enslaved in Egypt, they cried out and God heard and delivered them. When they were desperately hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, they cried out and he delivered them. So this is a call to cry out to God for his deliverance. And what he shows in this is that he alone saves us. He brings us to an end of ourselves so that we will know it is God who saves, not us. From my own perspective, one of the reasons God allows loss and suffering to go on so long is it takes about that long for me to figure out I can't fix it. It takes takes me a long time to figure out all my maneuverings and all my schemings are not the way out. It's God alone who delivers, and then he does deliver so that I will know his joy, so that you will know his joy. You're probably familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, question 26. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, that the eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is my God and Father because of Christ? I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide all my needs of body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever evil he sends me in this sad world. That's what this psalm is starting with. Great loss, unimaginable deliverance. So here's what this means to you today. Whatever your current loss or sorrow If you are in Christ, you may know this, that God has brought you into an impossible circumstance so he can bring an unthinkable deliverance so that you can know his joy. That's where the psalm starts. Someday you will say, verse 3, the Lord has done great things for me. I am glad. That's restored fortunes and the joy of God looking back. And now... He's not going to look back. He's going to talk about present sorrows in the joy of God. He's going to look around. And as he comes to the second half of the psalm, verse 4, 5, and 6, the mood changes completely. 
Verse 1, 2, and 3, the Lord restored. We were like those who dream. Our mouth is filled with laughter. Our tongue with shouts of joy. The nations are saying God has done great things. We are saying the Lord has done great things. And and now we, we go to weeping and tears and desperations and cries out to God for his deliverance. This, this begins with a prayer for God to act, God to deliver. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now they're back in loss. They're back in distress. They looked back and saw past deliverance. Now they're in distress again. And because of what God has done in the past, they are praying for God in the present to restore us, O Lord. We are back in a season of great loss and suffering, like streams in the Negev. Well, what's the Negev? And why do I say Negev rather than Negeb? Well, it's Hebrew, and the B is said like a V. Uh, what is the Negev? Well, the Negev of Israel makes Hila Bend look like a paradise. Okay? Um, It's a dry and barren wilderness. What's all this talk about the Negev? They're they're talking about our lives, our current circumstances are a barren waste. We have lost everything. And they're asking God to send a gully washer. They're asking God to send rains on these barren hills and mounds of the wilderness to send a thunderstorm, sudden rains, watershed, rivers, and leave behind grass and flowers. It's a metaphor that comes out of their experience and that we would understand in the desert. So the picture here is very simple in verse 4. The prayer is from people in the wilderness. Their lives look like the desert. Fruitless, barren, with barely enough to live, in need of an act of God. And rain is the picture, the metaphor of God bringing restoration and joy to people in a period of suffering. That's what Scripture says. God is the God, our God is the God who turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. He pours out water on the thirsty. He sends waters to the desert and makes them fruitful once more. So the mood has totally changed. But now they're in suffering again, and they're crying out to God, restore us as you have in the past. Send waters that make us fruitful. And here's what this means to us. See, no matter what wilderness you are in, no matter how barren the landscape of your life, you may cry out to God to send you the refreshing rains of his grace. Well, that brings you to a question. What do I do while I wait for God to answer? (laughs) I'm in the wilderness. I'm crying out to God to hear. I'm asking him to restore. He's done it in the past. I'm waiting for him to do it again. What do I do now? Verses 5 and 6 answer that. We're to sow with hope. We're to sow with hope. Verses 5 and 6 make a very strong point. They repeat it. They pile up words. Listen to this. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. So there is said first time. Just in case you didn't get the point. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, 
shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you get the idea here? It's a picture of people sowing. Sowing and reaping are the actions. But this is not ordinary sowing. This is sowing in the wilderness, sowing with tears of a broken heart, weeping for the loss of so much. Can I, can I ask you a question? I've never, I've never lived on a farm. My grandfather lived across from a farm in Pittsburgh where I grew up. What I do know though is generally farmers don't sow with tears. Unless, unless the previous year they sowed and there was no fruit. And the year before that, and the year before that, and then maybe to them it seems like sowing is fruitless and vain. Those who sow with tears have known great and prolonged loss and the apparent silence of God to hear them and deliver them. But they go out and sow nonetheless. They go out and sow with tears, anticipating a promise. And this psalm gives reason to sow. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with them. There will be a fruitful harvest, and there will be joy. Let me tell you what the psalmist is doing here, another way of looking at this. If you're like me, you're always interpreting your life. You're always, you're always saying, well, this has happened, so it must be for this reason. We always have a reason why things happen. Um, I just got a promotion at work. It must be because I'm such a good guy or such a great lady. I'm in the midst of great suffering. What did I do wrong? We're always interpreting our lives. We're always putting them on a timeline. We're, we're always looking at what we're going through now and trying to understand its significance, usually on a very short timeline. When is this going to end? How long can I endure this? This psalm is placing our lives in a long timeline of God's purposes and God's promises. And it's saying, as, as you are in the midst of a season of loss, as you're praying for the restoration of God, your weeping is real and the loss is real, but it will not last. Joy will come. Harvest will come. The promise of certain joy gives reason to sow even while we are weeping. So here's another way to say this. We sow in seasons of loss. They sow in seasons of loss with tears because God will have the last word. Suffering and loss are not the last word about my life. Tears and weeping are not the last word about my life. A joyful and abundant harvest is the last word about my life. God doing great things for us will be the last word of our lives, and therefore we live in light of that. And we go on sowing, looking for the day of harvest and joy. So that's, that's the psalmist talking about present sorrows and the joy of God. Now no, notice this is more than, hey, quit feeling sorry for yourself, suck it up, life's hard, keep on. That is such secular counsel. 
This is not get over it, press on. This is far more than positive thinking. This is, this is, there is a day of harvest that will bring you eternal joy when the momentary light afflictions of now will be swallowed up in glory. So on. That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, you may have an objection about this point. You say, well, that may be true for most people, but not for me. You see, my season of suffering, my loss is my own fault. I'm in this because I ruined the marriage. I abused the child. I committed the abortion. I cheated on the business deal. That's why I am in this season of suffering. I deserve this suffering. Well, so did Israel. So did Israel. After centuries of resisting the word of God, he brought his chastening judgment on them. And God restored them. God gave them promises like this through Isaiah. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, (coughs) says the Lord, your Redeemer. See, that's the God of the Bible. He is that good that he gives even to those who deserve suffering the exact opposite. He gives them everlasting love and compassion. That's what he offered to Israel. That's what he offers to us. And we have more clarity than Israel had. We have Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of this psalm. You see, Jesus suffered the loss of all for us. Think of Jesus' life for a second. After a life of boundless sowing, going about doing good and healing everyone who was oppressed by the devil, his people turned against him. His friends abandoned them. One of them even betrayed him. His enemies stripped him naked, falsely accused him, beat him and mocked him. And all of this he voluntarily bore in obedience to the Father. And he cried out to God with tears that he would be delivered. And he suffered and bled and died alone, penniless, for us. All that was for us, for you, for me. He suffered the loss of all so that you might say, the Lord has done great things for us, we are glad. He was delivered from death by resurrection and now he offers Forgiveness and freedom to us. See, we're the people who have brought ruin on ourselves. But God is rich in mercy and God has acted in Christ to deliver us from the suffering that we deserve through the suffering of his son, which he did not deserve. So there's a gospel promise here. There's a rich gift of God hidden in this psalm to all who call out to Jesus for deliverance from sin. That restore our fortunes, O Lord, will always be answered when it's a request for forgiveness of Christ. You shall be forgiven. Put a little differently, in light of the New Testament, we can say, sin is not the last word about your life. No matter what you have done, 
Your sin is not the last word about your life if you trust in Jesus Christ. The last word will be his word of forgiven. So just looking back over the psalm, that's the restored fortunes and the joy of God, present sorrows and the joy of God. And now let's just talk a little bit about how living, what this means in terms of what I call living in light of the last word. Let me explain that. Why do, I, why do I say joy is the last word? Why do I say sin will not be the last word or suffering will not be the last word? What do I mean by that? Well, here's, here's what I've found in my own experience. When, when I face, or perhaps when you face, great losses or sorrows, when we've sinned in great ways, we are tempted to be controlled by our circumstances. Or by our sin. We're, we're attempted to let our loss or our sorrow or our sins swallow us whole. Especially if the sin we've committed is public and humiliating. We are tempted to let our sin define our lives. And here's, what that means is I, my life is now defined by my suffering. My life is now defined by my sin. It means that if I'm writing the story of my life, the last chapter is my suffering and my sin. That's it. End of the story. This is the last word of my life. I will never get over this. I will always live in the ruin of my own sin. They become the last word. No. No, says this psalm, and no, says the New Testament fulfillment of it. Because of Christ's work for us, joy from God will be the last word. And shouts of gladness. That's what I mean by the last word. This psalm says that the last word of your life is not your weeping and your tears. It's the sowing and the joy that will come when God brings complete redemption to you. This is a psalm that invites us into joy. Now, I find I'm suspicious of joy. I'm a good Presbyterian. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give an example. If we're singing in, a, in the congregation and I see someone really moved by the song to the point where they're kneeling, I think, oh, wow, that's, that's wonderful. God's really convicting them. But if I look over and see somebody with their hands lifted or doing a little bit of a dance, I think, what's up with that? I mean, it's okay to feel really convicted. It's not okay to feel overly joyous. I mean, it's one thing to take your sin seriously. We really should take our sin seriously, but let's not get too carried away with this joy thing. I mean, we get the Chicago Cubs. They act like fools for the joy of winning the World Series after a century, but we're Christians. It's just not appropriate. I mean, all we've got is the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection of the dead. (laughs) I've got this suspicion of joy. Jesus invites us into his joy. He prays that we may know his joy. One of the great hymns calls Jesus the Lord of gladness. And Jesus, crucified and risen, says to us, My dear child, weep your tears, but do not forget, I have the last word. And that last word is everlasting joy. There will be a harvest and you will rejoice. All your sins will be forgiven and you will have great joy. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Here in the cross is where every enemy of joy is overcome. 
divine wrath as he becomes a curse for us. Real guilt as he becomes forgiveness for us. Law-breaking as he becomes righteousness for us. Estrangement from God as he becomes reconciliation for us. Slavery to Satan as he becomes redemption for us. Bondage to sin as he becomes liberation for us. Pangs of conscience as he becomes cleansing for us. Death as he becomes the resurrection for us. Hell as he becomes eternal life for us. See, this psalm is a weapon that I've used in my life for some time in a fight for joy. Because in the midst of great loss and even great sin, you and I don't have to allow the sin and the sorrow to have the last word in our lives. Now, God knows our sorrows, but he will not yield to our sorrows. God knows our sin, but through Christ, he will not yield to our sin. The last word for sinners is the offer of the forgiveness of God through Christ. The last word for suffering believers is that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I'm not saying, because the psalm is not saying, don't weep, put a smile on, everything's fine. No, weep. But your weeping and your tears are not the last word about your life. Anxiety is not the last word. Shame is not the last word. Disease is not the last word. Loss is not the last word. The last word is what Jude says. Someday, you and I will be in Christ, presented before God, blameless, with great joy. So, so on, even with tears. Because all suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all disappointment is seed to be sown, knowing knowing he will bring a crop of joy because God's joy will be the last word for his people. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the wonderful promises of this psalm that have been to me a source of life and strength and I pray will be that to my brothers and sisters here today. That where there is a season of loss, where there is sowing with weeping and tears, that they will press on in that sowing, looking for the day of harvest and great joy. And where there's been great sin and shame and humiliation because of that, they will press on sowing, knowing that the last word will be the cleansing of Christ that he brings by his blood. Thank you for giving us reason for real hope, not just vain hope but certainty that joy someday will be ours beyond measure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.